You're listening to the Fantasy Football Astronauts. Welcome back to another episode of the Fantasy Football Astronauts. We are taking on the NFC West with Jay Moyer as he breaks down his projections for this division, the best division in football. We'll head to the best team. Right, Jay? This is our, this is our team, right? The Niners. San Francisco 49ers is where we're going to start. Uh, Jay, I know a huge Niners fan. Um, so give us give us your background on this team. What do you think they're going to do after losing the Super Bowl in terms of fantasy? Well, let's first start with the whole fandom thing. Uh, you know, I grew up in the Bay Area, so I was a 49ers fan as a young lad back uh, in the days of Jerry Rice, Steve Young. Joe Montana was probably a little bit before my time, you know, when I was a toddler or so. When I really got into football, they were my team. I, I lived in the East Bay in Oakland, so when the Raiders moved back, adopted them, uh, abandoned the 49ers, it, but obviously the Raiders have now moved, so I am in the process of actually switching my loyalties back to the only Bay Area team left, which is the 49ers. But, you know, it's, it's hard to really, after so many years of, of devoting yourself to a, a terrible franchise like the Raiders, it's hard to get used to a team that actually wins some games. So it's, it's a transition <laughs> period, you know? <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, but, you, you, you know, probably missed we, a lot of the bad years. Well, I suffered through a lot of bad years with the Raiders, so I don't know how many bad years I missed. (laughs) Um, But, you know, getting back to the 49ers, one of the best parts about watching them is seeing an offensive coordinator like Kyle Shanahan, who really, you know, is one of the best in the game, just in terms of using the run, set up the pass, uh, scheming guys open, etc. So it's an exciting offense, sort of an interesting offense as it relates to fantasy production, not, not your typical spread passing game that's really quarterback focused so i think it'll be uh you know an interesting discussion as we talk about these guys yeah just at the top here um the the guy that i'm most excited about or that everybody's most excited about with this team is george kittle uh do you have him ranked as high as kelsey on the same tier uh or is there a difference for you between the two just when you're evaluating these guys do you feel like you're treating them as the same and you just want to take the cheaper guy or is there a differentiating factor in there for you um, in terms of Kelsey versus Kittle just when you're picking tight ends at the top? Yeah, so I don't think I'm going out on a limb here and really you know, talking about George Kittle as one of the best tight ends in the NFL. I do have him in that same tier as Travis Kelsey. Those two guys have a tier to themselves as the top two tight ends, really from you know a single-year perspective, but also moving forward into Dynasty. They're both young in their prime. Kelsey, obviously, a little bit older. And, you know, they're they're different style players. George Kittle is such a tremendous blocker. And the 49ers don't have the volume passing game that the Chiefs do. But it's somewhat offset because Kittle is clearly the number one target for the 49ers. So he's going to dominate the target share there. I don't really have any concerns about him going forward from a talent perspective. uh, Kyle Shanahan has really focused on adding playmakers that excel in the short passing game and running after the catch. And there's no one in the NFL better after the catch than George Kittle, whether you're talking about receivers or tight ends, you know, he's really a savant when it comes down to that specific area. And it's, it's interesting because yards after the catch in general, isn't necessarily uh, sticky year to year for certain players, but in George Kittle's case, you know, the past two years, he's really just been a beast after the catch. And when you watch him play, it's not that he's getting lucky with, you know, 
evading a shoestring tackle here a few times during a season, and that's it. Uh, if anybody saw that Saints game where he's dragging three or I think it was three defenders about 10 yards to pick up a first down on third and long, or was that maybe it was fourth and long? Um, you know, really just powerful, great at perceiving where defenders are coming from. I don't see any real drop off there just because he's so skilled at it. Uh, in terms of his, you know, market share, I've up them him up there getting 24% of the targets, a high percentage completion percentage because he is getting a lot of those short passes in space uh, built off the 49ers play action game. So can't go wrong with George Kittle or Travis Kelsey as, as one of your top two tight ends. Now taking a look at the target share and the way that you're splitting it up uh, with Debo at 13% and Kendrick Bourne and Brandon Ayuk at 12%. Um, it sounds like you, you don't have a guy really standing out. Is that mostly because of the Debo injury or is it because you you feel like these guys are similar talents? Yeah, I had to revise these projections multiple times because of injuries that the 49ers have had in their receiving core. Uh, you know, even these most updated projections that I have still have Jalen Hurd getting carries and targets, and obviously he's out for the year at this point uh, with the torn ACL. As far as Debo, I initially had him projected as the clear number two option be- behind Kittle. Again, a guy who's really outstanding after the catch and, and working those short intermediate zones. Uh, you know, great. The- these types of players are great fits with what Kyle Shanahan likes to do, where he is really good at scheming guys open and utilizing the run game and play action. So it's really, you know, difficult to stop when these receivers who run after the catch, get the ball in space for the 49ers. I think, <clears throat> excuse me. I think if Debo's foot heals up and he gets back to hundred percent and plays a full season, you know, I initially had him up almost around 20% of the targets. I think I had him at 19% when I did my initial projections so if he's healthy, I would I would definitely bump him up. Right now, I have him projected as my wide receiver 62. I think if he were healthy, he would be up in the the high 20s, low 30s range. Uh, you know, same area as where I have guys like um, AJ Brown. You know, I think he is is comparable in terms of skill set and talent to AJ Brown. Similar types of offenses in terms of run heavy play action passing game. So Debo, you know, if he's healthy, could significantly I produce where I have him projected now. And then when you get into the rest of the guys, Ayuk is a rookie who, again, his skill set really fits well with what Shanahan likes to do. Really good at in-breaking routes, explosive after the catch, a uh, really long receiver. So he's a good fit. Uh, you know, he's had his own injury issues so far, nothing serious. Uh, but, you know, I have him right now projected as the next option behind Debo and then Bourne as well, who's you know an unheralded receiver, had some nice production last year, especially in the red zone. So if he were to earn a higher target share, I think that he can be, uh, you know, extremely valuable, especially right now where his ADP, you know, hasn't really adjusted yet in a lot of formats to the uh, the 49ers injuries, where he's really the only veteran guy who's healthy. Uh, so I think that he could significantly outplay his ADP right now. He's, he's sort of going, you know, undrafted or just in the last few rounds of drafts and he could potentially be the, the 49ers top target behind Kittle, depending on how Debo's foot heals up and depending on whether Ayuk takes to the offense quickly. And when we take a look at Jimmy G, you have his, his numbers almost identical to what they were last year. So under 500 pass attempts, uh, around the 4,000 yard mark and the 26 touchdowns, I believe that's right in line so 
just when you're looking at these guys, is it almost in terms of the, the way the offense functions, Brandon Ayuk is sliding in as the Emmanuel Sanders type of character in terms of how he's going to like generate targets or what, what's going to go on there. And then um, in terms of the way that you're seeing Jimmy, you're seeing everything pretty much the same as far as the development in his game. Well, a few things went into it in terms of Garoppolo's numbers and those things resulted in him being pretty close to last year. I initially had him projected for some increases in efficiency. Um, I think the 49ers defense, you know, maybe not be, maybe won't be as good as it was last year, but it's still an elite defense. So I don't think that they will be in a lot of shootouts or really having to play catch up. So I don't think their, their attempt volume will be significantly higher than it was last year. I did have some increased efficiency, uh, mostly because of the development of Garoppolo and sort of, you know, recovering after his ACL injury in 2018, being, you know, more than a year removed from that now, figured that he would take a bit of a step forward. My issues in terms of bumping it back down sort of close to what we saw last year more have to do with what's happened to the receiving core in terms of losing Emmanuel Sanders and then Debo, who was really slated to be that next option after Kittle. Uh, you know, having his own injury issues. So with all of that stuff going on, I bumped Garoppolo down a little bit. Uh, and then, you know, just in terms of their offensive philosophy, again, I don't think it'll be a high volume passing attack. While I think Garoppolo is a solid quarterback, he's not, you know, in an elite or even outstanding talent category. So when you're talking about volume being king, you know, rushing being king for quarterback scoring, he tends to slot in, in the, in the bottom third of starting QBs, the NFL. And that's where I have him now. Uh, you know, I think he's a great player for what they do from an NFL standpoint, but not necessarily someone who's going to, uh, put up a ton of points in a, in a fantasy league. And one of the main things about a Shanahan offense that's so attractive is the prowess in the re- in the run game. Um, and, and the thing that people don't like is that it ends up being by committee. Uh, so how are you sorting out this backfield? Um, what are you doing with Raheem Mostert, particularly at RB 27 in terms of his ADP? Uh, and then who do you see being the standout guy, uh, just in this backfield? Yeah. So 49ers backfield, Shanahan backfields can be frustrating. Uh, you know, he's one of those running backs. Don't matter guys, not going to invest a huge amount in a bell cow back. Uh, it really all started with Terrell Davis with Mike Shanahan back in the nineties, uh, you know, being able to pull pot, pull guys off the scrap heap, I guess you would say, plug them into a really efficient blocking system. The Niners backfield is consistent with that. I do think that Mostert is the most talented backs of all those guys. You know, really a tremendously explosive running back, good contact balance. He'll break some tackles. And then really once he does, if he's in the open field and he can break a tackle, you know, he, he's going to outrun tackling angles and take it a long way. So He really started to shine through towards the end of last year, took over as the main back in the playoffs, had some huge games. I think that he will continue in that role. Um, You know, I do see Tevin Coleman cutting into his carries somewhat. I have Mostert getting about 190 carries, Coleman around 130. Mostert, you know, doing more with those carries because I do think that he is the more explosive back and I have him at 5.2 yards per per attempt. Um, If I were going to, you know, try to, Pulling anyone from this offense in the backfield, I would still go Mostert, even though his ADP is much higher than Coleman's. You know, Coleman's in the in the 40s as far as running backs, whereas Mostert's in the mid to late 20s in terms of average draft position. That's pretty close to where I have them projected, but I think if 
you know, often in a, in a situation where it's murky and maybe committee, I target the guy with the lower ADP, but I think Mostert really has a very high ceiling. If he takes over in terms of being a more prominent ball carrier, you know, if he out carries Coleman two to one, for instance, I just think he has the potential to be so efficient that he can really creep up into, you know, low end RB one, high end RB two territory as his ceiling. Whereas I, you know, I, I don't think that even if Coleman ends up getting a bigger share of the load than we think, that he would necessarily have nearly as high of a ceiling as Mostert does. Um, so, you know, I think a lot of people have decided to to stay away from Mostert. I'm actually, you know, someone who would take him because I think that he has a realistic path to having a very explosive season. Yeah, I love Raheem Mostert. I think people are sleeping on him, generally speaking. Um, Shanahan might end up going with a a situation where he leans on one guy a little bit more. And I like your carry split at 40%. I think that's that's pretty fair uh, as far as what you're giving Mostert there. Um, but in my mind, he can go up into the the, two, the low 200 range, pretty simple. Uh, he's just, I think, more advantageous to have on the field um, than Coleman, just more explosive overall. So um, love the 5.2 yards per carry and everything that you got going on there. Yeah, and then I think, you know, people often think of Mostert as not being a receiving back or, the you know, think that Shanahan is going to have McKinnon in there as a third down back. But when you look at Shanahan's history, at least with the Falcons and 49ers, he hasn't typically had that traditional role split where one running back is the early down guy and another guy is the third down pass catcher. It tends to be and, you know, maybe this has to do with the talent he had on hand in Atlanta with Devontae Freeman and Tevin Coleman, and then who he's had here where he has these backs with similar skill sets who can catch the ball and run it a bit. But he hasn't really had those traditional roles. So I do think that, and I have them projected, Mostert, Coleman will have similar workloads in the passing game as well. I don't think Mostert is going to have, you know, no opportunity as a receiver. I don't, think he's going to get 60 or 70 targets or anything but I don't see you know a big split uh, really in terms of any any of these guys getting way more targets than the other in fact I have Mostert at 27 Coleman at 28 McKinnon at 25 Um, so you know I think that his receiving upside while it's not tremendous is discounted a bit as well okay let's take a look at the Niners main competition for the NFC West title. And that's the Seattle Seahawks, which really, I mean, the, the landing in, in the playoffs ended up coming down to an inch or two um, in that final game in Seattle. So uh, let's talk about Russell Wilson and what he can do. Are you taking him in this elite group of quarterbacks? How close do you have him to like a Lamar Jackson or a Pat Mahomes? With Russell Wilson, it's always a question of utilization Uh, with Schottenheimer there as our offensive coordinator. You know, in terms of talent, I think Russell Wilson is the second best quarterback in the NFL when you factor in his rushing ability, his passing uh, talent, you know, throws probably the best deep ball in the NFL. Uh, I have Mahomes edging him out as the, the most talented quarterback. Lamar Jackson probably, you know, close behind as third. But the issue is just their their offensive philosophy. You know, they really want to run the ball, so it limits Wilson's volume. Often that ends up having to pass a lot at the end of the game to to win the game in the end. Um, 
I don't really think that will change. You know, I, I did have some hope that maybe they were trying to institute more of a pass heavy attack when there was talk this off season about bringing in Antonio Brown, possibly Josh Gordon. Um, none of that has come to fruition since then. They also added Carlos Hyde to bolster their backfield. And to me, those off season moves really speak to the fact that they still want to run the ball. Uh, you know, when you hear Schottenheimer talk and Pete Carroll talk, they still talk about wanting to run the ball and, and establish the run game. So he's limited in terms of volume, and I think that limits somewhat his fantasy projection. So I have him outside of that tier of, you know, where I have Jackson and Mahomes. I actually have Wilson as my fourth quarterback uh, with Dak sneaking in there as QB3. And I think in terms of thinking it from a tier standpoint, it's almost like those top two guys, Mahomes and Jackson, are in one tier. Dak is in the middle of that tier and the next one. And then I have Wilson down in, in that third tier along with guys like Deshaun Watson, Kyler Murray, and then I'm really high on Tom Brady this year, so I have him in that same tier as well. Yeah, I think just generally disappointing with now seeing the weapons that Seahawks have with Lockett and Metcalf coming together. Uh, If we got another year where they are still all about the run game, I think from a a fantasy perspective, um, might be a little bit underwhelming in terms of what you're going to get from those guys, but uh, you have pretty good numbers there for Lockett uh, with 113 targets. So talk to me about uh, how you see the separation between these two receivers. You got uh, Metcalf, who looks like he might be a Calvin Johnson, Mike Evans kind of um, freak. And I know that you're going to have a different analysis there. Um, but how are you going to differentiate these two guys? Yeah, so when I project their you know, the, the targets that Wilson is working with. I do think that Lockett and Metcalf really make a dynamic pair. Metcalf is really well suited to play with Russell Wilson. Uh, you know, when I watch him play, his obviously his explosiveness, his strength, his size, his speed really stand out. Uh, you know, very unique receiver in that way, obviously. And, you know, when you think about his weaknesses, I think that some of it has to do with his, his lack of flexibility, I see a lack of body control, um, not necessarily super comfortable attacking the ball outside the frame or in you know ways other than sort of over the shoulder or catching those in-breaking routes. Uh, so I see some discomfort with with uh, you know certain types of routes and not necessarily the route running itself, but really being able to a- accommodate and adjust to the ball. Um, so I think he's somewhat limited in terms of his his skill set as it stands now, but he is really excellent at what he does well, which is, you know, get vertical, uh, release from the line of scrimmage, create separation on those in-breaking routes, and, you know, using his, his size and his speed to create those opportunities down the field. And Wilson is, <laughs> you know, the best quarterback, like I said, in the game at getting the ball where guys need it. So I think Metcalf and Lockett really, you know, are a great pair. I don't see their roles changing much from what we saw last year because I do think that Lockett has really progressed over his career and is a very well-rounded receiver at this point. I also think that Metcalf will get a bit more attention as their number one receiver than he did last year where he didn't really necessarily get that number one receiver treatment um, throughout the season. So for me, that somewhat limits his upside because I think if he's getting that attention, he has to develop ways to win uh, outside of what his go-to strengths are now. And I think he will develop those over time, but it's you know a growing process, a learning process. 
for those types of guys who have success early. Um, and as it stands now, I just think Lockett has, you know, more versatility to his game in terms of running more routes, receiving the ball in different ways. So I have him with a slight edge. I have him being slightly more efficient in terms of his catch percentage and then, you know, his yards per target. Would it surprise me if Metcalf takes a big step forward? No, because I think that, you know, you see that he's he's a player who's very willing to work on his craft and you see the growth in his game from where he was in college to what he did as a rookie. So, you know, if these if this is flipped and Metcalf becomes the number one target there and gets 120 targets, even I wouldn't necessarily be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised if his efficiency increases either. Um, but I'm a big fan of Loggett's game, and so I have him projected as their number one guy right now in terms of targets. Uh, I'm excited to see how Metcalf's game develops early on in the season. Yeah, that's probably my favorite and the most thorough analysis I think I've heard on that situation and and, and the way that you're interpreting or understanding um, each player's development and where they are in their career. Um, and I'm, I'm with you in terms of what you're seeing, like 100%. I, I think the the thing that people get caught up on when they think about Lockett is they just think he's a small guy and they might forget how quick he really is. Uh, he's a four, four Oh guy. Um, and if you treated him or you thought about him, like he was a four, three guy, then maybe that would um, bump up the value um, in a lot of people's minds. And so just as far as like the way that he plays the game, he can go anywhere um, and really do anything as far as um, routes or using him in different formations and across the field. So um, Lockett has a ton of value. Uh, and if you're, you're going to lean on one guy um, to be like a surprise wide receiver one, I think Lockett is, is super interesting. Um, as far as Metcalf, yeah, can yeah, I go ahead? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's something that you and I have talked about a bit in terms of the perception of players when they come in. I think if you're drafted early and you have that draft capital or you have that buzz about your name coming into the league, those players are often thought of as, you know, more highly than someone like Tyler Lockett, who wasn't really well regarded coming into the league, wasn't someone who's going in the first or second round in the NFL draft. Uh, you know, you see it with guys like Philip Lindsay, et cetera, where they really have to earn it every year and still people don't quite believe. Uh, but Lockett has really, really progressed over his career. Uh, so, you know, if he, if he were a highly drafted player, he probably, you know, but the same guy. I don't think you'd be able to get him where you get him right now in fantasy drafts. Yeah, totally. And then in terms of what you said about Russell Wilson being one of the best deep ball passers and DK Metcalf skill set meshing there um, to watch them play. And I think it was like week 11 was when they actually figured out uh, how, how to throw a fade or how to connect on the fade. And then they just kept going back to it. So it took them a little while to develop that timing and that chemistry of that. Um, but I mean, they're, I, I think they're going to be big trouble and, um, you know, I, I don't know how much Richard Sherman is going to drop off, but I think as Metcalf develops, um, and they begin to stretch us out a little bit more in terms of the, the Niners, um, I think the Seahawks can be a real threat, uh, to, you know, be that next team to, uh, kind of head towards the Super Bowl in the NFC. What are your thoughts on the tight ends here? Are we just ignoring them generally? Uh, you're actually giving Greg Olson 70 targets, it looks like. So, uh, yeah, what's your what's your thinking there? Yeah, Greg Olson is one of my favorite late-round tight end targets. I think that he has very sneaky upside this year, assuming he's healthy, especially if Will Disley is slow to come back. You know, promising young tight end who's had 
seasoning in season ending injuries, lower body injuries now two years in a row. Russell Wilson likes to target the tight end and he hasn't really had at least in the last few years, uh, you know, since Jimmy Graham has left that, that top target type of guy there. Um, last year, Jacob Hollister, you know, played 11 games, ended up with 59 targets, 41 receptions. And this is, you know, sort of like an H back fullback converted tight end type of player who stepped in after Will Disley went down for the season. So obviously nowhere nearly as, as accomplished as Greg Olson. He's not nearly the route runner that Greg Olson is in terms of being able to work the intermediate zones, but Hollister had some explosive games down the stretch last year, really stepping in, you know, as a young guy learning the position. So when you throw a veteran in there like Olsen, who I don't think is prime Greg Olsen or anything, but just a guy who knows how to get open, it's, you know, gets back to those two receivers that we both are feeling pretty good about right now. Those guys are going to get a lot of attention from defenses. And so Greg Olsen's going to be able to work the middle of the field against linebackers very often. You know, the past two years, Russell Wilson has targeted the tight end around 20% of the time despite not having that big-time playmaker at the position. So I have Olsen getting 14% of the targets, you know, 70 70 targets on the year, Uh, you know, being pretty efficient with those targets just because I think he'll get a lot of easy looks. And so really, uh, for me, a player who can step in as a low-end tight end one this season, and right now, you know, when you talk about where he's going in fantasy drafts, you can get him super late. He's tight end 22 off the board. So he's my he's my second tight end on a lot of my fantasy teams this year. And when we check out Chris Carson in the run game here, uh, it looks like you have him right where his ADP is, or in in a in a actually you have him lower than his ADP in terms of uh, where he's going to end up ranking. Um, putting up pretty disappointing numbers with uh, Carlos Hyde coming in and stealing a lot of touches. Um, so as far as the way that you're looking at Hyde coming off of his 1000 yard season, do you think that he's a, a viable threat to Carson's overall volume in terms of the way that, um, Carol is seeing the field? Is he going to treat him like, okay, this is my, my penny guy. These guys I'm going to treat as very similar or is Carson going to be injured or something like that? Yeah. There are a lot of question marks in this backfield. Chris Carson, obviously coming off a fractured hip last year. Had a broken ankle, I think, uh, two years before that, his rookie season. So has had some injury issues. Has a running style that really takes a lot of contact. Uh, you know, not afraid to lower his shoulder into a linebacker. And then Rashad Penny's on the on the pup list. Probably going to start off, you know, not on the roster to begin the season here. They also drafted DJ Dallas to come in, who's gotten a lot of hype as, uh, you know, a receiving option. Was a converted receiver in college. Signed Carlos Hyde, who is probably one of the more underrated backs in the NFL, in my opinion. I don't think that he's a game-changing back or anything like that, but he's a starting caliber NFL runner. You know, in my opinion, a better, at least a more consistent runner than Rashad Penny was. Rashad Penny has more explosiveness to his game, but not nearly as skilled between the tackles as Carlos Hyde is. So I, I think that Hyde will get a significant number of carries, even if Chris Carson is healthy. I think because of Carson's injury issues, they'll want to protect him a little bit and take some of the load off and hope that they have him healthy as they get to the end of the season. And, you know, like you said, they clearly have hopes for a deep playoff run this year after trading for Jamal Adams. So they really want Carson down the stretch rather than taking 20 carries a game early in the season. 
So I think whereas a lot of people think of him as one of the last few like quasi bell cows, I, I see it as much more, you know, not an even split, but close to an even split between him and Hyde for what we're going to see this season, where I have Carson getting 207 carries, Hyde getting 147. Um, you know, I'm not a huge fan of Seattle's run blocking offensive line. And so I have Hyde's efficiency taking a dip from where he was last year. I actually have him slightly below four yards of carry. Whereas Carson, I think is, you know, a better runner and is a little more explosive. And so I have him, you know, picking up more yardage and scoring more points than the, the carry share would suggest, but again, still lower than where consensus is on Carson. So what it means is I end up avoiding Carson in my drafts and, you know, having Carlos Hyde actually as one of those last, you know, he's in the RB 60 range in terms of ADP, one of those uh, late round picks that I think has potential upside. If Carson were to, you know, become injured at some point during the season, which is not obviously unprecedented for him. Yeah. Overall disappointing for a guy who was RB nine last year in, in half point PPR. Um, but I, I think, you know, just the way that Carroll has built this team um, in terms of, okay, we want to grab as many running backs as possible, um, drafting DJ Dallas, all that kind of stuff, that that writing is there in terms of how they're going to end up using people. So um, if that becomes a platoon, I would not be surprised. Uh, you good with the, car, uh, the uh, Seahawks here? So when you look at the rest of the competition in this division, uh, the Rams are only two years removed from losing the Super Bowl. And they had such a huge drop-off, especially in terms of fantasy. Uh, Jared Goff taking gigantic step back. Uh, where do you see him and his development? And do they get this offensive line together? Or are there any any uh, changes there in terms of the growth of the machine of the unit um, that really ups the value here? Yeah, overall, I'm pretty low on the Rams this year for a couple reasons. Uh, first, you know, last year we saw defenses adjust to the McVay system where he's running a lot of compressed sets, you know, building offense around the outside zone rushing scheme. Uh, there was a pretty popular defensive adjustment to what he was doing, really struggled to overcome that towards the end of the year, started doing more play action, more bootleg passing and was, had some success there. So, you know, he may have figured it out, but I think really the key here is their offensive line, you know, is really, really struggled last year and they didn't do anything to address it this year. They have Andrew Whitworth who, you know, has had a great career as a left tackle, but now, you know, you see him on hard knocks and the guy's like 57 years old. Um, looks like someone that might be your grandpa. So, <laughs> you know, if, if he could stay healthy, that's one thing, but you have to worry about the injury concerns, ineffectiveness at that age. Um, they lost Roger Saffold, who went to Tennessee last year, and that hurt them tremendously in terms of being able to get those lanes for Todd Gurley. I see more of the same this year. I don't think Goff is the kind of quarterback who is good enough to overcome those types of challenges. You know, Patrick Mahomes, you throw him behind a shoddy offensive line, he'll buy time and he'll get things done. Jared Goff really needs that that protection to, you know, have time to process the field. You know, he's a good passer, but not really a quick mover or a quick decision maker. So he's a guy that's particularly bothered by not having enough time to throw. Um, and so for all those reasons, you know, I don't have huge progressions for this team in terms of getting back to the efficiency we saw early in McVay's tenure in LA. 
So if you look specifically at Goff's numbers and his ADP value, uh, you're much lower uh, with him lining up at quarterback 22 in, in your final rankings here. Um, but you do have him throwing a high volume of passes. So how do you see this offense breaking down in terms of um, Goff's inability to feed all the receivers? Or uh, what do you see as far as efficiency goes that's pulling him back um, despite high 608 pass attempts? So there are a couple of things with McVay. One, he's going to pass the ball frequently. They run at a uh, they, they run their offense at a pretty fast pace. Um, you know, Goff or the the Rams as a team have been above 600 passing attempts uh, for the last two seasons in a row. Uh, pretty similar efficiency from 2018 to 2019, which is where I have them there in terms of yardage. Uh, so right around 4,500 yards for Goff on 608 attempts. Um, you know, I don't, I don't see huge progression there in terms of improvement for Goff. Uh, you know, I think that his his skill set is somewhat limited. Again, it gets back to what I said earlier by, you know, not having an offensive line that's going to give him a lot of time. I think he's a very talented thrower, has arm talent, can really access all areas of the field. But where he really struggles is with, you know, the foot quick, the quick footwork, the quick decision making to get passes out on time in the quick game. Um, so one area where that really affects him is in the red zone where everything is compressed. Uh, you know, the defense doesn't have to spread out over as much of the field. Often teams bring more players in terms of blitzing, uh, you know, try to increase the pass rush. So the key here is, is I really have him at a low percentage of touchdowns, you know, only 23 touchdowns on 608 attempts. It's very low relative to, you know, average touchdown percentage for quarterbacks in the NFL. And, you know, it's a little bit above where they were last year, but his last year was somewhat of an outlier season. And people say, well, don't you expect them to rest towards the mean? In general, yes, you do. But for Goff, I think some of it gets down to what his specific skill set is and what Sean McVay does in the red zone. And, you know, maybe this has to do with Goff's skill set of, you know, working in those tight windows, working ahead of the defense. Uh, you know, they run the ball a lot in the red zone. McVay, uh, McVay offenses often run in a ton of touchdowns. And then Goff is not necessarily great at fitting those passes in there when he needs to. So I see a high volume passing attack moderate efficiency in terms of yardage, uh, and then inefficiency in terms of scoring touchdowns. And when we take a look at this receiving core, you have, or when we take a look at this receiving core, Cooper Cup last season ended up finishing the year as wide receiver four, and then the year prior, Robert Woods was wide receiver nine. And so there presents a little bit of a challenge as far as which guy are you going to value, um, who's going to make the most of this season, uh, in regards to their ADP, which is pretty close. Cooper Cup is down at wide receiver 14 right now. Robert Woods is a little bit cheaper at wide receiver 18. But it looks like you have a very clear answer for us as far as who's going to bring the most value. So tell us about Robert Woods versus Cooper Cup and what you're doing overall with these receivers. Yeah, so I'm very high on Robert Woods. And I think a lot of it gets back to the offensive adjustments that I talked about with McVay towards the end of the season. Um didn't talk about this, but they ran a lot more 12 personnel, you know, one running back, two tight ends. And in those personnel groupings where Cooper Cup doesn't necessarily get to run out from the slot, and I think Cooper Cup is a very talented receiver. So 
you know, if this split ends up being different in the end, I wouldn't be that surprised. Actually, I think both Woods and Cup are very, very talented receivers, probably both underrated in terms of how they're thought of, uh, you know, by fantasy players and also just NFL commentators in general. Uh, you know, so I wouldn't be surprised if the production here is closer than I have it in terms, you know, I have Woods pretty significantly ahead of Cup in terms of targets and also production. But I think Woods has been working outside as an outside receiver for a long time, really is a guy who's gotten a lot better throughout his career in terms of his route running. He's a very tough receiver, excellent hands, very reliable possession receiver in the NFL. And when they were running these two tight end sets with a lot of play action, a lot of boots, you know, Woods is running his crossing routes that he's very good at, uh, you know, his comebacks, his sort of deep in-breaking routes, the offense was really well suited to him, and the guy was just getting insane volume when they changed the offense at the end of the year. Cooper Cup obviously was coming off a torn ACL. I don't think he was a hundred percent at the end of last year, so I don't have him. You know, his 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 volume really diminished when they went to this new offense, both in terms of his snap share and his target volume. I don't think that's how it will be going forward, but. I think that Woods is fit and, you know, he was getting over 11 targets per game in his last, I think it was his last six games of the season, uh, you know, a rate that would have translated to 170 plus targets on the season last year if that was done over 16 games. I think he's going to get volume. I think he's going to capitalize. Uh, you know, I have him as my PPR seven just because he's a guy that I think will easily get up to the 90, 100 reception range. And I think those guys are pretty rare in the NFL. Um, you know, huge value for me where he's going at wide receiver 18. But I do think that Cooper Cup, I, you know, he's not, I don't think he's undervalued per se at like relative to my projection. I haven't projected as wide receiver 24. He's going in the ADP 15. But if you told me that Cooper Cup was getting, you know, eight, nine, 10 targets a game and 90 receptions this year, I wouldn't be surprised at all. So I do think he has even more upside than where he's being drafted right now. It's yeah. just if I had to choose one guy that I would say we get that volume right now, it's Woods. Yeah. Yeah, I, I could see that. Uh, Cooper Cup is such an interesting projection because when you're really running it out he, and you look at his past numbers or just the numbers over his career, he's he's got insane productivity. He just scores touchdowns all the time and Goff loves him. So uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what they do if they decide to run more 12 personnel with both Higby and Everett, um, or if, if they, uh, kind of move into that, um, Everett being a, a real backup. Um, is there a, is there a, do you have a, a good indication of who you like leading that tight end group? Well, obviously you know, the, the stretch the Rams had to end the season was really interesting because Woods and Higby both just went bonkers, uh, in terms of volume, but also production. I mean, Tyler Higby over his last five games was putting up numbers that we've never really seen for a tight end. You know, it would have projected to like 1,700 receiving yards, uh, you know, 120 receptions. So it, it really was, yeah. it was, you know, it was historic what he was doing when he finally got the opportunity. And so, again, it makes for a really difficult projection because prior to that, before he was injured, Gerald Everett was the primary tight end. You know, he was out targeting targeting Higby. Some of that may have been, you know, you, you can never discount the decision makers and the draft capital they put into these guys. Everett was McVay's first draft pick. Higby was there before McVay got there. So they're going to give Everett 
every opportunity to succeed, whether he deserves it or not. Uh, you know, most of the time that's how it works in the NFL, not every time. So that may have been part of it in terms of why Higby never really got, uh, you know, a chance to be the, the main guy. But then when he did become the main guy, just really went nuts. You know, he has a pretty good contract going forward. They re-signed him. So for me, I think that he's going to be the primary tight end. I don't have him projected to be, you know, Travis Kelsey 2.0, which is what he was last year at the end of the year. Um, but, you know, I do have him projected as I think the numbers come out to like my tight end four. So obviously, you know, I'm projecting him to have a big season, but there's a lot of volatility there, a lot of uncertainty there, uh, both on the upside and on the downside, because we've seen what his upside is last year and his upside last year is historically great production. And when I watched the film, it wasn't like Higby is, you know, Gronk or Kelsey in terms of his route running or in terms of his, you know, ability to to bring down contested balls, physical, you know, working in physical contact situation. But the Rams play action bootleg passing game really just created a ton of separation for Higby. And Higby did do a good job, you know, bringing in some very difficult passes. They would line him up wide have him run a fade against uh, you know, a defensive back or a linebacker, and he's coming down with those passes. So it's not like he wasn't doing anything and earn, earning things on his own. Uh, so I I have him projected as, you know, in that second tier of tight ends behind Kittle and Kelsey. Uh, but again, a lot of uncertainty there. And it wouldn't surprise me if Everett and Higby really sort of saw an even you know, snap share, target share, and then neither one of those guys is like a truly viable tight end. Yeah, I think that ends up being the main concern there is just total volume for a guy. But uh, I mean, just in your in your analysis of Higby, I, I would agree with uh, just like the the upside that he has if Everett fades away is is pretty strong. I, and I know as a prospect coming out of Western Kentucky, I really liked his game. That was post Travis Kelsey um, hitting, um, and Travis Kelsey came out of Cincinnati as I think he was a third round pick, and he was like a good blocker, pretty good receiver, explosive athlete, and then. Uh, you know, just in, in watching Higby play at Western Kentucky, I was a fan of his game and thinking or looking for the next Travis Kelsey. So um, I was pretty high on him. And then I know too, Sean McVay spending so much time with Jordan Reed, Jordan Reed in Washington um, had big plans for Gerald Everett coming out of, I think it was South Alabama. Um, but Everett is a, is a demon after the catch um, for him. I think for both these guys, really, it's just about getting the volume and, throughout their careers up until this point, they've just been cannibalizing each other. So um, I don't know that that is necessarily going to change. And, you know, for that reason, for both of these guys, um, I'm way lower um, than typical. Yeah. And I have Higby projected as my tight end four based on how I arbitrarily, you know, split the volume between those guys. But, you know, in terms of my rankings, I don't have him that high and, when I've drafted teams, I've had trouble pulling the trigger on him in that range where he should be based on my projection. Gotcha. So another committee that we'll want to sort out is this Rams backfield. Uh, and looking at Cam Akers coming in and being the stud, um, he's a second-round pick, though, following up another second-round pick. Um, just when you compare them as prospects, what do you see about Daryl Henderson's game that you like and think um, has enough potential to give him 115 carries um, when you're comparing him to Cam Akers uh, and what you saw at Florida State. Yeah, I liked Henderson a lot coming out of Memphis. Memphis ran a lot of, you know, gap style running plays, counters, traps, etc. 
Henderson was very good at timing his attack through the line. And, you know, he didn't need a ton of space on those style of plays. But it's a very different style than what the Rams run, where they run a lot of zone runs where you need to really have balanced footwork, patience as you read the hole. And you're sort of creating a hole for yourself, you know, using your your vision and your footwork. It's just a very different style than a trap where you're just timing your your attack off the guard's hip. You know where you're going. It's just a matter of sort of getting in that hip pocket and then exploding through the line. So he really struggled to adapt. Um, you know, Tony Pollard was his teammate at Memphis, and he adapted much better to his own running scheme in Dallas. And I think that's just sort of how it is. You know, some guys are naturally gifted at running zone style running, uh, you know, run plays. Some guys are not. Henderson obviously was not. So, you know, he never really was able to to get it going. Um, my hope is that McVay changes up his scheme a little bit and lets Henderson run some of the plays he's more comfortable with. You saw Kyle Shanahan run more gap style running plays last year in San Francisco than he typically would. Um you know, McVay is obviously heavily influenced by Shanahan. So you hope that he picks up on some of that stuff with Henderson because Henderson is so dynamic, uh, very efficient with his attack, an excellent open field runner. You know, he, he knows how to, to drop his shoulder, turn his shoulder angle and break tackles in a very efficient way, which is why you saw a ton of long touchdown runs in Memphis. And then when I get back to Cam Akers, in terms of the competition, you know, Akers not not necessarily the exact same issues that I see with Henderson, but I think Akers is very raw. Florida State's offense was generally in shambles. Um, they ran a bunch of different types of run plays. Nothing really executed very well. But, you know, in terms of like the finer details of running back play, in terms of like pressing the line of scrimmage, you know, waiting to cut back until the linebacker has made a decision, I think Akers a lot of the time made the job more difficult for himself than it had to be. And then another area where I see him struggle is really anticipating and understanding leverage. Um, And, you know, these qualities are better when you can sort of point them out with film. But, you know, it's it's like understanding where a linebacker is going rather than where he is, understanding where the defensive lineman is going to be rather than where he is. You know, Akers likes to see the hole and run to the hole rather than understand his blocker's leverage and run to where the hole is going to be. Uh, the guys who are the best runners in the NFL understand leverage. You know, when we're talking about someone like Philip Lindsay, whose whose vision and anticipation is really elite, or someone like Zeke or Kamara, uh, you know, those guys who really excel in from a technical standpoint in identifying holes where they're going rather than where they are. And in the NFL, things open and close so quickly that you really need that to have consistent success between the tackles. So I'm I'm really interested to see how Akers develops because, because he is such an explosive athlete, but just really so much rawness to his game. And I think a lot of that may have had to do with coaching. Uh, another thing that concerns me about him is he's very physical. He really welcomes contact. He'll run you know, directly into linebackers head on. And I mentioned this with Carson. When I see guys with that style historically in the NFL, you think of someone like James Conner, Um, you know, Chris Ivory, those guys who really run violently, they tend to have a lot of injuries and, you know, tend to burn out pretty quickly in terms of being productive guys in the NFL. So I'm hoping that he can learn, uh, you know, to, to use his, his pad angle a bit more to avoid those big hits and finish runs while still picking up yardage, as opposed to just trying to run guys over. 
Yeah, and it looks like as far as your analysis of the vision, you're applying that to your projection here with him struggling a little bit behind that offensive line with a 3.9 yard per carry. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm with you there as far as uh, the overall eval of Cam Akers. I think he's going to take the backfield role um, right away, though. Um, so I have him a little bit higher. I have him in the, the low 200 range. Uh, and then Daryl Henderson just plays plays the uh, change of pace back. Are you concerned at all about Malcolm Brown, just in terms of the way that Sean McVay might pull the, uh, Kyle Shanahan and what he's looking at? Well, we saw last year with Henderson that if a young guy's not ready, McVay is not going to force him in there. And I think Malcolm Brown has shown, if nothing else, he's a very reliable player. I think most likely he'll be at the short yardage back uh, at least to begin with, I think he's going to have a significant role right now. I have him getting 23% of the carries, which is slightly behind both acres and Henderson. But I think if, if acres really struggles to adapt and Henderson doesn't progress much from last year, would I be surprised if Brown ended up, you know, having an equal carry share or even edging these guys out in terms of his carries and, you know, target opportunities not necessarily just because that reliability is there. And, you know, McVeigh showed last year he's not going to force a young guy in there just because he thinks he has natural talent. Okay, and, and the last team in the NFC West is actually one of my favorite sleeper playoff teams. I see Cliff Kingsbury and Kyler Murray taking a big step forward, uh, and it looks like you have Kyler Murray also thrown for more passes than he did last season, so the volume bumps up a little bit there, and you have him finishing at quarterback seven. So his ADP right now is, is quarterback five. Who are some of the other guys that you'd rather have um, compared to Kyler Murray? And then where are you at just in terms of what you see his overall career arc being going forward? Yeah, I think Kyler is, I think honestly he has more boom bust potential than people think. I think everybody's fully on board in assuming that he's going to take that next step to be, you know, the Russell Wilson, Patrick Mahomes type of player. Uh, I'll get to this, but I think there are things in his game that give me pause right now. Um, in terms of from a fantasy perspective, you know, the the Cardinals are going to run their offense at a fast pace. They couldn't really possess the ball last year very well, so they didn't run a huge number of plays. I do expect their play counts to progress. I think that Murray will pass more than he did last season. Uh, you know, pretty frequently he would pull the ball down and run on called pass plays. I think that he'll do that less this year. Uh, which may actually hurt him somewhat from a fantasy perspective because rushing yards are so valuable for quarterbacks. But he's a very talented runner. Uh, you know, they run a good amount of designed quarterback run plays in Arizona. Uh, so I, I still have him producing from a rushing perspective. And I think for that reason, he's a pretty safe bet to be a top 10 quarterback, regardless of how he progresses as a passer. But like I said, I do have some concerns about his game uh, you know, as a passer, just being able to identify open targets. When I studied him this past year, he really, he really doesn't see the field well at all. Um, you know, he'll have primary receivers in his progression who are open and he just misses them. A lot of it gets back to anticipation and understanding leverage. You know, if a, if a tight end is running past a linebacker and the linebacker's hips are square towards Murray, you know, that receiver's open. The, the player's going to run into an open space. So you don't have to wait till he clears the linebacker because if you do, then now the, the tight end's getting into the area where you have your deep safeties and it's too late. And Murray would do this quite frequently. 
And, you know, it resulted in him sort of scrambling and improvising. And it's a lot of the same stuff that we saw at Oklahoma. Personally, I think it's, it's, it's a bit much to assume that he's going to all of a sudden become even an average processor after the snap. I think that he'll still struggle in that area. It's just a question of how much he can progress. And then when you talk about his talent as a passer, you know, his arm strength, his accuracy, his ability to run, he brings a lot to the table outside of his processing that I think he'll be able to get by. And just for me, my projection in terms of, you know, is he going to be, you know, QB 10? Is he going to be QB five? Is he going to be quarterback three? Gets down to how much progress he makes in really the mental side of the game, processing things both before the snap and after the snap. You know, if he grows there significantly, then he could really push to be a top three quarterback. How would you compare him to Deshaun Watson, just in the way that you're, you view Watson as a prospect? That's going to make the pod a little bit longer, but that's a super interesting question <laughs> from me. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think, you know, Watson is not quite the runner that Murray is, not quite as explosive. Now, Kyler Murray is not the runner that Lamar Jackson is, which I think sometimes people think that he is not nearly as creative, not nearly as elusive as Lamar Jackson is. So I don't think he's ever going to push a thousand rushing yards, which is, you know, fantasy gold when your quarterback is also a running back, but he's very explosive. He's a dynamic accelerator. And when he gets a straight path, you know, he, he can really pick up chunk yardage. Um, Watson is not quite as accurate as Murray, in my opinion, especially on those, those deep, like sideline balls. Murray throws with great touch on those passes. And so it gives the receiver a bit more room for, uh, you know, to adjust and manipulate the defensive back and take advantage of the fact that most receivers are better tracking the ball than defensive backs are. Um, so the, the touch and the accuracy, I think Murray has an edge over Watson. Uh, Watson, I think also struggles with his processing at times, which is why you see him take a lot of sacks. Uh, you know, in addition to the fact that the Texans offensive line hasn't always been on point, they're better now. Um, but I, I do think that Watson does have an edge over Murray in that area, even though it's not a strength of either one of their games. Like right now, I'd say Watson is sort of an average post-snap processor for NFL quarterbacks, whereas I think Kyler Murray is down in like the bottom quartile of NFL quarterbacks for post-snap processing. So, you know, that's how I would parse those guys out. But I think in summary, they have pretty similar pretty similar strengths in that they're both very talented passers, both very athletic, uh, you know, good runners, even though I think Murray's a little more dynamic than Watson is. Uh, but probably the biggest weakness in both of their games is processing after the snap. Yeah. That's one thing I noticed at Clemson was when, when watching Deshaun and trying to, to figure out how he sees things, he made his decisions very fast. And so it always looked like maybe he's not getting to his second read or whatever. Um, but he would just like, pick and choose and, and do that right away. Um, and, and I think that he's impressed me just overall in his development, um, over the past few years. And it looks like he's able to, to sort everything out just fine. Um, he's been a great quarterback. Um, but one of the guys that he's relied on Deandre Hopkins has now flipped teams over to Kyler Murray. And I mean, just looking at your numbers with the 25% target share, you are not worried about any of the smoke about the Cardinals wanting to spread the ball out. Um, giving him 141 targets. I love to see it. 
uh, talk about DeAndre Hopkins and compare him to uh, like a value of Christian Kirk and Larry Fitzgerald and, and whoever else you have um, being fantasy relevant. No, it's, it's very interesting to try to parse out this receiver group without having a preseason to go on because really a hallmark of the air raid offense is spreading it around to receivers. You know, it's, it's really designed not to have that alpha receiver. But DeAndre Hopkins is just so much more talented at this point in his career than anybody else on their roster that I think he, you know, talent really dictates targets for the most part rather than scheme. And I think he's going to earn those targets. And a lot of it gets back to what Kyler Murray does well and what he doesn't do well. You know, I, I already went through this a bit, but I don't think Kyler is a guy who's working through a progression, finding the open man, whether it's his first, second, third, fourth read, and hitting the open guy. I think that Kyler is better if he can, you know, get an idea of what the defense is going to be in, drop back, check his first read. If it's not there, then he creates a little bit until someone hopefully pops open. The thing with Hopkins is whether he's open or covered, he's always open because he's such a good contested catch receiver that unless, you know, he's getting double coverage, Kyler should feel comfortable putting it up to him as the, you know, as the first guy in his progression more often than not. And Hopkins is such a talented receiver along the sideline. When you talk about his sideline awareness, his ability to get his feet in bounds, his body control, his physicality at the catch point. And that really syncs up well with Kyler Murray's strengths, where I think he's one of the best sideline passers in the NFL when you're talking about sort of every range of the field to the sideline. So the talent fit for me is there, and I think that Hopkins has such an edge over all the other receivers that he's going to get a lot of volume, even though the scheme is sort of designed to spread the ball around a little bit. Yeah, I think in terms of skill fits, it's the perfect it's going to be so beautiful. It's like Jonathan Taylor with the Colts or Clyde with the Chiefs. The The match between Kyler and Hopkins is going to be, I don't know, I'm, I'm all about it. I don't know why anybody would fade Hopkins out of the top five, but um, that's just that's just me apparently uh, and you. <laughs> um, at, when you're looking at Christian... A lot of people. When you're looking at Christian Kirk, uh, where are we, what are we thinking there? As far as the way that he's developing, um, you're giving him 100 targets, so that's looking good. Um, but as far as his overall numbers, they're remaining low or they're similar to what they were last season. Yeah, I think this is where the air raid philosophy comes in to play a little bit more because Christian Kirk is not a guy that I would think would earn a ton of targets in most NFL offenses. You know, he's he's a viable he's a viable NFL receiver. He is, you know, fast. He's good after the catch. Not necessarily a very detailed route runner, not great, you know, with the stuff that I was talking about with Hopkins, body control, contested catches, the physicality. So he has some significant holes to his game, but just the the way they run their offense, the separation that Kingsbury is able to create through his route combinations, you know, that that's another thing for me that was frustrating watching Murray is because the offense was creating a lot of separation, even with the receiving core that wasn't considered to have any elite guys, there were guys open on most plays. And, you know, it's just sort of a crapshoot whether he was finding them or not. Uh, But I think because of that, you know, Kirk will get his opportunities regardless of whether his his talent earns extra opportunities or not. Um, And, you know, Fitzgerald, obviously a Hall of Fame career, but I think at this point a guy who probably won't see as high of a snap share as you 
are used to from Fitzgerald. So I see Kirk as the clear number two. And I think in this offense, that means you're going to get a lot of targets. Right on. And then talking about targets, um, the running backs are an interesting feature as far as um, who got big reps. Um, and so when David Johnson was healthy and on the field, he was getting really good volume. Um, Kenyon Drake, uh, as he stepped in and took over for David, um, just when he got traded, he was getting really good volume. Um, how are you seeing them sort that out? And then what's, what is the target potential here for Kenyon Drake in terms of the upside? Yeah, the running backs are, are interesting in Arizona. When Kenyon Drake came in at the end of the year and was a starting back, he was a true bell cow. And so, you know, it's interesting for me to to wonder whether that will continue because Chase Edmonds is a very good player. You know, I think Kenyon Drake has him in terms of being the more talented guy. And Kenyon Drake is such a perfect fit for this offense where the, the spread nature of their alignments in terms of, you know, their, their formations and the type of run plays they run where they really use Kyler Murray's running threat to open up extra lanes to, you know, force a, de- a defender to be dedicated to Murray in the running game. Drake is such a talented open field player that once he gets a seam and he's in the open field, it's really, you know, a lethal combination. And then as a receiver, he's just so great at working in space really a natural receiver uh, in terms of, you know, the screen game, but also downfield routes. So not a surprise to me at all that Drake really took off once he got that opportunity. And I think because he is such an outstanding fit that he will continue to be the clear lead back, even though Chase Edmonds, I do see him having a bigger role than he had down the stretch last year where, you know, again, Drake was seeing almost all of the rushing work in those games where he was starting. Um, as far as the receiving upside, you know, it's, again, just that air raid philosophy of, of spreading the ball around. The running backs do get targeted, but it's not a Christian McCaffrey situation where he's going to be getting up anywhere close to 20 plus percent target share. You know, last year when he was uh, last year when uh, Kenyon Drake was the lead back, you know, he, he saw about 13% of the targets in the games that he played. And so I haven't projected with Edmonds taking a little bit bigger role than he did down the stretch last year, uh, around, I think, 11% of the targets for Drake. Maybe about 10% of the targets for Drake, actually. Um, And again, I, I think that his upside, the max that he could really see there based on how they run their offense is probably around 13 to 15%. Um, but if Drake sees the role that he did last year where he's getting almost all the carries and around 13% of the targets, you know, he, he easy, easily can push for a top five running back season with that usage. Gotta love it. Well, that wraps up the NFC West. Um, another good show there with Jay on, um, we are the fantasy football astronauts and we are blasting off again. <laughs>